Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and today's guest is Nick Deolius. Nick is a chemical engineer. He's an attorney. He's a podcast host, an author, the CEO of CNX Resources. And his new book, Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America, is out today. You'll find a link to that in the show notes we talk about what led up to Precipice, some of the most important takeaways from the book, and a plan to save America before it's too late. Nick and I started such a great conversation as soon as we started the call that I just hit the record button. So you'll have to excuse the informal intro, but I know you guys are going to love this interview. So without further ado, let's get going with the show. Do you like to keep the, the business life and the, uh, the books and all that separate, or is that all pretty much out in the open? I think, you know, some of those things need to be thought through from a governance perspective, but the way we've structured it, a lot of the themes of the advocacy uh, are very consistent with the underlying why of the the company and the industry that we work in. So all this uh, chatter and debate about the social purpose of a business, you know, it's got a view, at least that I subscribe to, where there is a responsibility uh, that speaks to advocacy. So if the themes that you're advocating for are key to the business at hand and, and who you're working for, I think there's, there's a good overlap. Um, on the financial front, what we've done is we basically have taken the approach that all the net proceeds uh, from the book will be contributed back into the company that I work for, its foundation, uh, that's going toward a mentorship academy uh, that's looking towards mentoring and developing career paths for kids that are seniors in high school. Uh, that are from urban or rural underserved school districts, right? So these are the kids typically that don't plan at least initially on going to go get a four-year college degree, and they're looking for a career, a profession, not just a job. Uh, so we're, we're taking the proceeds of the book into that. So I think there's been a lot of thought with that. It's a great question. In 2022, with public corporations and the energy industry, and you know, as we've navigated through it, I think we found a, a place that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we've we've really entered a place where it can be it it can be dangerous to be outspoken with politics and still be part of a of a public company and still be in the public eye in that way. Have you seen a lot of issues with uh, censorship? For certain, it has been. Now, some of it is is very explicit and obvious. Some of it is a bit hidden or or implied behind the scenes. But really, what you're seeing there with the business community and this type of pressure. Uh, that you're describing is really consistent part and parcel to what's been happening to individual rights. So it's not just business, it's free speech in general. It's not just, you know, what's going on with respect to the energy industry. It's, it's with respect to dissent and looking at something as basic as science and science, you know, looking at the uh, theory of, of scientific consensus and saying that's a ridiculous theory. It's a flawed theory because science has never been about consensus. It's about breaking consensus. So it's, it's very, um, true it's real but it's also part of i think a bigger trend in our society in our economy it's, it's not a shock to see it i'll also tell you that there's a flip side to that there's a corollary which has been that before this really became the issue that it is across society i very much you know subscribed to the political quietism approach to things when it came to running our business i kept our head down we kept focused on the task at hand and we basically ignored a lot of the criticisms or, or mistruths or vilification about what we were doing or the, the nature of who we were. But it reached a point you know, where from a critical mass perspective, uh, there becomes, I think, an ethical duty, a moral responsibility to speak on behalf of science and the math, to advocate on behalf of your employees and your industry and the region that you come from. So it's been an interesting journey, starting with you know, political quietism, this issue in society that you're describing growing, reaching a critical mass, an inflection point, a tipping point, whatever term you want to use, but then also seeing that roll into this discussion and this thought that many people go through about what is my ethical and moral responsibility as a business leader and and what should I do? How should I advocate? Well, it's a a little bit easier to stay quiet on politics when you're in a more free market, but as the market becomes less and less free, eventually I think you just have to speak out. Now, speaking on energy real quick, we've been talking to our listeners a lot 
lately about the climate change goals, the green energy goals. We've been telling them that you know COVID is one thing. I think there's been a lot of individual liberties taken away over the last couple of years. We've told everyone to take everything seriously, but we also have to pay attention to the future for individual liberty as well. Uh, we told everyone that the climate change agenda might be one of the biggest boondoggles that we ever have to counter, as especially as a podcast or as libertarians that listen. Uh, where are you at on on that whole front? I think I would agree with everything you said except one word. I don't think I use the word might. I think it, the word should be it is, it has become. And the reason it's it's so big prevalent is that energy touches everything. Everything relies on energy in some way, shape, or form. And when you start to march down this path, uh, there's a couple of, of flawed underlying assumptions uh, that, are, that are tied to this. When you look at climate change policies, whether it's the U.S. version or regional versions we see within the United States or EU or, or frankly, what's becoming increasingly global versions of climate change policies. Um, the first goes back to the math and the physics. And that is this belief, this, this myth that there are such a thing as zero carbon energy or a zero carbon economy. There is no such thing. So when you look at things like wind and solar, which are basically the prescribed solutions to get to a quote unquote zero carbon economy, the carbon footprints tied to them on a cradle to grave basis are egregious. They're massive. And the reason is to apply something like wind power to scale, to replace something like natural gas on our grid. There is just a tremendous amount of carbon intensive activity that needs to occur. You need to mine whole bunch of rare earth materials and elements and compounds. It's very carbon intensive, very surface disruptive from an environmental perspective. You need to process them, to purify, very carbon intensive. You then need to manufacture components from them. Those factories are going to be driven and powered by carbon. You need to transport all that stuff, probably from places like China and Russia to places like the United States. And then you need to clear pads for each of these turbines. You need to run individual transmission lines from them. And then you need a backup source of power when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine in the case of solar. You add all that up, the carbon footprint is quite substantial and easily exceeds that of something like natural gas. You'd lump on top of it, you know, supply chain risks, because these are thousands of miles of supply chains versus a couple hundred miles domestically with domestic energy. And then the human rights side of this, right? We're paying our companies a great example of this, but it's, it's not uncommon within the energy space domestically our average all-in compensation for our employees in this company is over $150,000 per year. So we're going to trade that and forego those professional opportunities and trade them for who knows what types of human rights abuses with respect to how, say, the Chinese Communist Party is going about extracting all those minerals and materials to build us our energy grid, our wind turbines, and our, and our solar panels. So the first underlying problem of climate change policies, it's all based on a flawed premise that these things are zero carbon. And thus, if you run to these, you are going to solve whatever your views are on climate change and atmosphere. You're going to solve the or remove the risk. That is a that is a flawed assumption, and the math and physics prove it. Um, and is you know geopolitical impact when it comes to to energy and, and climate change policies. You basically geopolitically weaken the democratic republics like the United States, which do favor and, and respect individual rights. And what you do is you embolden, you strengthen the dictators and the totalitarian states, whether it be Russia, whether it be the Chinese Communist Party. And they know this. Our adversaries understand this quite well, which is why their best friends geopolitically are some of these environmental groups that take these radical stances on pushing uh, and lobbying for these climate change policies. So it's not surprising to me, everybody says that, um, that Putin is causing high energy prices or high gasoline prices. Putin has been enabled. He is a derivative result of, he's a consequence of climate change policies in the end. Because if you play it through, you press these climate change policies under that flawed assumption, we adopt them all. What does Europe do? Europe shutters its domestic energy. It retires all of its nuclear coal and natural gas fired power plants. It assumes wind and solar will fill the void. They can't. So then the plug mathematically in the winter or in the summer when it's hot is something like Russian natural gas. That increases inflation. Inflation increases energy costs or vice versa. It's the same circle. That makes the balance of trade payments for somewhere like Russia 
much more profitable. Uh, there's energy insecurity that's viewed as a geopolitical lever by someone like Putin. And then he feels emboldened to do something like he did with respect to the Ukraine. And now, you know, we talk about unprecedented sanctions, but yet we can't seem to stop working with Russian banks that are energy clearinghouse uh, forums for, for energy trading, you know, the whole Russian oil debate, natural gas, et cetera, et cetera. So this to me is a very um, foreseeable sort of a, a natural to be expected consequence that is Putin, Ukraine, that type of strife. And the bad news is it's going to get worse, Nate. I think when you look at China, there's a much bigger, longer term danger here. When you start thinking about where do the solar panels and the wind turbines come from, where, where must they be ultimately sourced from, and how can that be used geopolitically if suddenly our first-rate domestic energy grid is going to be replaced with an outsourced energy grid that's basically dependent upon places like China? That, to me, is very worrisome, and it goes beyond just something like Taiwan. Yeah, I just thinking on on that point right there, I read several articles over the last few weeks talking about how we needed to end our fossil fuel dependency, fossil fuel tyranny. It was time for it to end. And it seems like we're going along this idea that clean, this green energy, that they require no materials, they require no minerals. Where do we think that we're going to be getting all of that? Uh, we still are going to be dependent on other people. And in fact, like you're saying, even more dependent than we are right now because we could produce a lot of this energy right here. And all of those minerals that we get for the panels and the turbines and all that, we're going to have to be going to other people. There's another thing that you touched on in, I think, a recent podcast episode. That's the far middle, which I'll put a link in uh, the show notes for everyone to go to. A great podcast, by the way. And I specifically love that you dedicate the episodes. Uh, and I, I love I love hearing about all of that. And I have to ask you about some sports and some music here in a bit as well. Um, I love hearing about all of that. But you were you were talking about how the prices for, say, natural gas or oil or whatever, if, if it's my understanding that if Russia can still find a buyer for these, that in fact, they're getting higher prices right now than they were before all of this started. And while they, they're they definitely being hurt in parts of their economy, the people directly that they're selling, they're getting higher prices right now. I just saw yesterday, I think China said they're going to continue buying uh, from Russia. So if they can still sell it, are they as hurt as the media would say they are right now? No, and in the end, at the start of the Ukraine crisis, uh, Europe procured about 40% of its natural gas from Russia because of this, this flawed math and this, this mythology tied to wind and solar, you know, having to plug the gap, so to speak. Now, that's going to decline to the extent that the United States can step in with some natural gas supplies via liquefied natural gas. But nevertheless, as you said, you know, the energy demand for the globe is what it is. It is growing people desire access to carbon. That is just a carbon, you know, if you're anti-carbon, you are anti-human. It's just that simple. And if you're anti-carbon, you're anti-individual rights. So everywhere, every society, economy, nation, that has increased its utilization of carbon is seeing a dramatic increase in life expectancy, a dramatic plummeting of, uh, you know, premature births or premature deaths uh, via, via insufficient healthcare, and then a, a basic increase or step change improvement in individual rights for entities or, or gender issues, racial issues, et cetera. Carbon basically is a provider of all those things. And the, the, the flip side is also true. When, when carbon utilization declines, and actually the old Soviet Union is a great example of this, the exact opposite things occurred. Life expectancies plummeted, uh, infant mortality rates skyrocketed, and um, individual rights obviously took a, took a bit of a beating. So you play this through and, and you look at climate change policies enabling something like a Ukraine crisis with someone like a Putin. And then you start to think about what does that do to the individual, these, these climate change policies coupled with the Ukraine issue. Um, you look at energy touching everything where we started our conversation. You go to the store, the food store, all the plastic containers that are holding the food are basically petroleum based and the cost of those are going up significantly. So everybody eats, the price of food is going up. Um, you look at what is needed to fertilize the food, whether you're vegan, whether you're, uh, you're, you eat red meat or not, it doesn't matter. All of it is basically dependent upon uh, fertilizers and fertilizers are basically carbon-based with respect to their feedstocks in the end. The cost of that is going up. 
So you're getting hit once again with respect to food, food costs and food prices. You start looking, of course, at things like automobiles. Automobiles are made from things like plastics or similar materials that are going to require sort of carbon access or carbon-based. The price of powering it, whether it's an electric vehicle or whether it's gasoline-powered, has gone up because, again, the grid on the electricity side has been experienced the same inflationary and cost increase pressures that uh, the gasoline is. And then, oh, by the way, your ability to finance the car has just gone up in terms of cost and your, your ability has been reduced because when you got inflation running rampant like you do, everybody has suddenly realized, including the Federal Reserve itself, it's been very late to the game with respect to uh, inflation and you know this wish that it was transitory in nature and you know having emergency economic monetary measures in place since 0809 when we didn't have uh, the emergency for over a decade plus. And now interest rates are being increased and yield curves with the yields are increasing and the cost of financing that car or buying the home, et cetera, has, has all gone up. So you, you add all this up, it's certainly not a surprise and very foreseeable that inflation has been stoked to the extent it has. Again, going back to the root cause, when you start un, sort of unraveling the, uh, the onion, so to speak, to climate change policies. And then it's also not a big jump to see how that is damaging the economic potential, the career potentials, the life potentials of a whole bunch of individuals across all sort of ladders of the socioeconomic rungs in this country. And what I worry most about, Nate, is not just what's going on here. You know, what about the almost 2 billion people on planet Earth that don't have access to reliable, affordable electricity and energy on a regular basis? You know, what is life like going to be for them if we don't get the uh, root cause of these issues assessed properly and addressed properly. It's not going to be good. Yeah, one thing I see a lot from people on the left, collectivist, socialist, whatever we want to call them, is an inability to think into the future, to think about economic growth. What To me, all they really see is how can we take what exists right now and distribute that out. They don't ever look towards tomorrow. You can see things like this uh, from yesterday, Biden putting out the billionaire minimum income tax or whatever, or as we're calling it, the don't create wealth tax. I think that's the, uh, the best way to describe it. They don't seem to think about the future. If you were to get this energy, say, to people in Africa and their economies were to grow, who knows what would come out of there? Who knows what benefits that would have for everyone else around the world? Maybe there would be the next scientists, the next, the next doctors, the next inventors and innovators uh, that would come off of that continent and would end up changing the world. But they they typically they don't they don't look towards that future they they want to look at what we have right now and divide it out and that's and that's it and if you look at the rising prices of energy or anything like that well that has nothing to do with fed policy that has nothing to do with our domestic energy that's not regulations that's just corporate greed that's all it is actually we need to regulate those people um how dangerous do you think these ideologies from the left are those ideologies, of course, are nothing new. Um, they span generations. They've been around for a while. Um, prior generations of, of really bright lights and brilliant minds have warned about it, um, going back to you know the Austrian School of Economics, et cetera, uh, and then subsequent to people like uh, Friedman and, and, and the like. However, um, what is different now, and this is really one of the underlying themes or catalysts for me to write precipice, is that the the scale of this, the critical mass of this has reached a point where in the old days, let's say, uh, when these issues were still out there and the ideologies were there, or maybe some of those activities were actually occurring uh, within or next to the free market economy, they weren't of size or significance where they were you know, having an impact to the point where uh, the math still worked. Everything could still function. It was an inefficiency. It was a drag. It had collateral damage for sure. But in total, the free market system, capitalism, individual rights, you know, those things were still dominating or trumping um, the inefficiencies, the drag that the leftist ideology was having across our economy and society. Through a lot of machinations and planning and patience, because I do have to give the left credit, um, this was something that they played over the, the decades. It was a long game strategic thinking, I think, to a, a very high degree. So I have to, to give them credit for that. But what they've done over decades, and you can go back to, to Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and the Great Society and President Obama. This has been in the making for a very long time. But this 
ideology and the different sectors of society that has now been sort of hijacked by it or consumed by it are so large in the aggregate that it is now sort of looming over the free market. It is looming over the individual when it comes to individual rights. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these symptoms from what's going on with climate change policies and Vladimir Putin to what be happening with respect to free speech rights on campus, right? Going from like the marketplace of ideas historically into now these, these places of intolerance when it comes to dissent and free speech. These are all symptoms of basically this big concerted campaign that has spanned decades and is starting to bear, unfortunately, significant fruits for the left. So uh, you know, it's gonna take a, a massive effort, I think, to start to undo some of these things, or at least to halt them. But I think what it does go back to is science, logic, reason, um, rationality. And there are some probably some, some pretty basic things that we could embark upon as a country to help you know, stem this flow and start to reverse the course. Yeah, that's some of the stuff I want to I want to ask about. And you mentioned that the left has been playing basically the long game. They've done this over decades. That's something that we've mentioned to our listeners quite a bit. That uh, we, you know, we're libertarians, but we wouldn't be what we call all or nothing libertarians. Some they want uh, no taxes, no Fed, no Department of Education, or no Department of whatever name is after that. And the, okay, that's a long term. That's a long-term wish list goal for us, maybe, but maybe we're going to have to do this one step at a time. Do you think that people that are of this mindset, that they they need to learn a little bit from the left about doing this one little step at a time? And can maybe libertarians, Republicans, people on the right work together on that goal? For sure. I mean, there is certainly some, some plays to copy from the playbook. Um, that's been true throughout history, through uh, the military, sports, whatever, you know, music, right? Whatever analogy or era you want to look at, sometimes imitation is the biggest form of flattery, but sometimes it works. Um, the other thing that's needed, frankly, is, is some courage and, and some ethical and moral responsibility uh, for people to stand up and to advocate uh, for something that in the end is morally just, is quite noble, right? Is something that, that is, is ethically responsible. I think the courage is often lacking, not just in business, but in politics, uh, in a lot of different walks, in academia, and a lot of different walks out there where historically they've got proud traditions of being able to exemplify those types of traits. But for some reason recently, because of those pressures that have been building, um, people keep their head down, they don't speak up, and, and they remain silent. I mean, that's a big missing ingredient. And then maybe, you know, parsing this down to a handful of issues that are very material, but that everybody can relate to. It, whether they realize they can relate to them initially at first glance or whether after you know, a couple of minutes of, of thinking it through, they suddenly do realize that it is important to them. It is material to them, their families, their regions, et cetera. And those handful of issues, I think right now, are sort of blinking danger, um, warning signs on a very large scale. And it's a, a good opportunity, as good as of an opportunity or time as ever, to try to focus some public uh, citizen stakeholder attention to these things, because I think the fixes are, are pretty straightforward, pretty obvious, pretty reasonable. You know, it sounds like a really big task when you think about all the different ways that the government has its hands in everything, this ideology has its hands in everything. If I were to boil it down, the one thing is that we need to focus on individual liberty, the sanctity of the individual, more of a an Ayn Rand kind of approach. You know, one thing that she would say is that we don't have to argue that uh, free market capitalism or individualism is the best thing for the most amount of people. It is. But that's arguing from the standpoint of the collectivists that what we are doing is to benefit everyone. Actually, it's just the only moral philosophy that there is. That we all own ourselves, that we believe in individual liberty, and the free market will uh, spawn out from that. And yes, we will have the best society for the most amount of people. Um, from that, I wanted to ask you about one of the things from your from your book, and I was reading on your site about this. Uh, you called it the the leech, and I read I read through all of that. I thoroughly agreed with with all of it. And uh, would you mind just giving giving everyone a little bit of insight into what you mean by that? Sure. You know, one of the the key, probably the key underlying premise of of Precipice, the book, is that if you look at our economy and our society today. And this has always been the case, but you can look at it in the lens of today. There's no time like the present. 
Um, there are there are maybe four broad categories of, of careers, professions, endeavors, etc. But they really boil down into two broader groupings. On, on the first grouping, uh, they're the creators of, of value. They're the creators of, of wealth. They're the enablers. The enablers could be ones that provide perhaps financing to the creators. The creator is sort of the inventor, um, the person or the entity that is manufacturing something from nothing. Um, the enabler helps them do that. Without the enabler, the creator can't realize their potential. And then you have a server, a server of uh, value creation. A server could increase economic utility. A server could do you know, a lot of different things and provide a lot of different functions within society. It's a necessary component of it. it makes life better from that perspective. So all three of those, creators, enablers, and servers of free enterprise of value, they are the wheels that keep everything spinning. That's what basically manifests the quality of life that we enjoy today. And that's what brought us from where we were, we being either mankind or we being the United States of America uh, to present day. Um, the second sort of bucket or category is what you referenced, which is the leech. And the leech isn't necessarily about you know, making things better or creating value or helping others to create value. It is first and foremost focused on consuming or appropriating the value that others have created. Okay, now sometimes this will be wrapped around a veneer or a packaging of looking after the public interest um, or you know, curing a, a, a ill that's in society, whether it's, a, it's an actual one or a perceived one. You know, there's always a, a rationale or reason why they would need to be the ones to appropriate or consume or procure someone else's value. Um, but that, that is the, the ultimate sort of reason for being with respect to the leech. And again, they've always been there. That component of an economy or a society has always been there within the United States or within you know, Republican democracies. And what's happened over time is through this ground game, through the long game, taking the long view, the influence, the size, the magnitude of the leech relative to those other three, the creators, enablers, and servers of value and free enterprise, it has grown to the point where we literally are on a precipice. And thus, that, that was sort of the catalyst for the, the name of the, the book and the title of the book. Now, how do you think it, the, the leech grows so much? Is that just a natural occurrence? Is this a, a master plan that people have been working on? Uh, how do you keep that from happening and how did it get to this point? Yes, to both. Uh, you know, it, it is bureaucracies, right, have a, an organic component unto themselves. Bureaucracies, no matter where they are, they could be in corporations, they could be government, uh, they could be with respect to nonprofit institutions like universities. Bureaucracies find ways to entrench themselves, protect themselves and grow themselves. That's what bureaucracies do as an organism. But there is also a crucial component to this, which is the second part of, of what you proposed, and that is intense, well-thought-out coordination. You know, one hand washes the other, one feeds the other. So if you think through you know, some of these once very noble, uh, important segments of our society or professions and how they align and collaborate with one another, it's, it's very apparent from government to media to academia. There, there's an example right there of, of three in particular, where NPR is an example, is funded largely from government. And then it's sort of content and it's themes that it will broadcast and promote directly or indirectly uh, are basically those that favor more government and favor large government. And then with respect to government, it takes more of those resources that it procures from the creators, enablers, and servers of the free market economy and it feeds directly and indirectly massive subsidy to academia. And academia right, indoctrinates younger professionals or soon-to-be professionals in terms of how to think with respect to ideology, stamps out any dissenting views, and then it mints those new graduates, and those graduates go in, and where do they work? They work in places like government and media. And this cycle just feeds upon itself and helps itself through a bootstrap mentality that over time starts to really avalanche or snowball into a very substantial effect and, and effort. And then it starts to, to move into other professions, other arenas, other areas. So when you look at climate change policies and you really look at what's occurring there, it's not about carbon dioxide levels at all. As I said, the science of that completely uh, refutes that myth or that premise. What it is about is taking a dollar 
from someone creating, enabling, or serving free enterprise through energy production, energy efficiency, things that rely on energy via manufacturing, et cetera, and then appropriating that dollar to put it into the pocket of either government or academia via research or um, some of these professions uh, like the legal profession, media, or those looking to basically become middlemen uh, with respect to, I'll take you know, this trading platform for CO2 credits or this issue with respect to uh, these different uh, technologies that have protected markets uh, with respect to how much you need to use within, say, an electricity grid or within our transportation fleet, right? So electric vehicles, uh, wind and solar, et cetera. And I'll basically uh, make money off of that at the cost of or to the expense of whoever is using the energy, which is basically everyone. Yeah, I've, as you're talking about this, my mind is always just thinking, man, how do we stop this? And all I can land on is we've got to cut off some of the funding sources. You know, that's that's what I get to. And I see that that's also a section of a couple chapters in your book as well, that they can't do all of these things without the funding. Of course, they could just create fake money out of thin air, but that's only going to work for so long. Uh, so what do we do about those? What are the funding sources and how do we take care of that? Well, they are substantial um, and uh, you're exactly right. And this goes towards also speaking about some of the solutions, you know, okay, these, these problems and, and this dynamic uh, that we're seeing and we're describing in the book, I, I got it right. I, I'm worried, I'm concerned, but what do we think we should do about this? It goes exactly to what you're speaking about. So, so one simple measure is what I call, you know, the, the cigar box model of, uh, of money management where if you open up a, a corner store, right, everybody that's run a business knows that you got that cigar box model of, of cash flow where cash comes in into the cigar box and what you have going out can't exceed what's coming into the cigar box. From a government perspective, we sort of lost sight of that, haven't we, with 30 plus trillion dollars of federal government debt. Maybe an approach and the discipline to say, we are going to pass balanced budgets each and every year with respect to what our government is doing, just like we do in our households, just like we do with our businesses, that would go a long way. Um, going to something like academia, which its business model and its, its fiduciary duty are completely broken. You know, we're minting, we're taking uh, subsidies that are driving up creating an asset bubble called college education. Tuition is skyrocketing. The quality of the degree is plummeting. And these students that are graduating, they're indebted to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars and they can't get anything close to a job it's going to justify a rate of return. So when they default, it goes back on the taxpayer shoulders. If we want reform in academia, that's part of the one of the cogs that's part of this issue, this problem. Maybe what we should start doing is when there is student loan forgiveness, instead of having the taxpayer pick it up, it comes out of that university's endowment. And if you do that, you will see reform with respect to academia. Um, public unions are a big issue. I'm, I'm a supporter of private unions. I have to tell you, my family was a beneficiary of private unions. Public unions are different. They're inherently conflicted with their client, which is the taxpayer and the citizen. Even Franklin Roosevelt recognized that with public unions. So one sort of solution when it comes to public unions, which again, are sort of part of this dynamic, is to say any collective bargaining agreement with a public union has to have two things, a no strike clause, because you, when you strike against those you're, you're sworn to serve, that is a conflict and some very clear performance metrics. So if you are a uh, school teachers union at a public school system, let's set targets for what everybody can agree are reasonable reading, math, science, proficiency levels for eighth graders or 12th graders or whatever the case might be. And if you meet those, we're good. And if not, that's a breach of the contract. So there's a whole range of different things. You mentioned you know, monetary policy, the Federal Reserve. How about an adoption of an approach with Federal Reserve where we say the mission of the Federal Reserve is very simple, you know, stable prices, moderate, reasonable interest rates. And it's not there to solve social, uh, social injustices. It's not there to solve future weather with climate. It's there to take care of those two things. Its track record hasn't been very good since its inception in 1913 or whenever it was uh, with just those two things. Let's get back to basics with the Federal Reserve, because that type of monetary policy, as we know, much of it sort of justified and engineered by the left, is stoking inflation, creating speculation, firing up asset bubbles across every imaginable asset class. That, that would go a long way. And you know, then I think another 
uh, type of, uh, of an approach to look at social media. We haven't talked about big tech. Um, love the innovation, love the disruption of big tech. That is, you know, the free market and the uh, creators, enablers, and servers that we spoke about on value creation. But right now, they want to have it both ways. You know, a lot of social media platforms, they want the um, sort of freedom or shield of liability that a platform would have, where they don't want to be held liable for what's put on there. But then they also want the control of the content via a publisher. Well, you can choose to be a publisher or you can choose to be a platform. But what you can't do is both. You can't be both. And I think that would also sort of put a big segment that has sort of become confused um, with what drives individual rights in the free market and what doesn't. It would, it would make them make the same types of choices that everybody else in society has to be held to. So there's some obvious, I think, paths to this, but you're right. What do they all speak to? They all, in the end, speak to a lot of those massive trillions of dollars of money flow that goes into this value appropriation, value consumption um, mechanism, scheme, whatever you'd want to call it, that really weaponizes a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah, speaking of, you know, you were talking about a balanced budget. And yesterday we were talking, I'd already mentioned the billionaire minimum income tax. And, and I don't know if you looked into that very much yet, but essentially they're saying that they're that they're going to do a 20% minimum tax on unrealized income. They even put unrealized income in part of it, which is a, just a ridiculous... I got a little bit heated on the podcast yesterday. I'll just say that because it's so ridiculous. And the thing that I that bothers me the most... Two things that bother me the most. One, they said that it was going to change the deficit, decrease the deficit by $1 trillion over 10 years. Now, we're running a $2.8 trillion deficit right now. So over 10 years, uh, you could do the math on that. And we're talking about changing that by a trillion by doing this. And uh, But that doesn't seem to be worth taking money out of the hands of private entrepreneurs, innovators, and investment in the market, and then giving it to the government so they can essentially just set it on fire. And that that's what that's what we always say they're they're basically doing. They're not as good at creating value as people who have the proper incentives in the market are. And and I think what we're really missing here is a lot of that incentive structure that exists in the free market. There is no incentive for the government when they have the use of force, when they can force you to give them their money and then they can spend it. They can control all the different levers of power around the country with academia and the media and all of this and we're we're really in a we're really in a pickle right now and i think what gets even more annoying is that people like myself uh, like you people like milton friedman and people going back to ayn rand and and of course throughout history have been saying that this was all going to happen and then when it does happen it gets blamed on corporations yet again that that's always what happens. We get the inflation starting this year. Well, that's corporate greed, of course. Uh, insurance, health insurance prices went up after Obamacare. Well, that was because of the greed of the insurance companies. That's actually what it was. And I, what I'm worried about is that we're always going to hear that it's the fault of people in the market. And so the answer is obviously more government control until this just gets completely untenable. Well, your fears are well-founded. Now, the good news is, to me, this is a sign that desperate people are going to do desperate things um, when, when the game is almost up, when accountability is suddenly going to rear its head. I think that's a lot of what you're seeing here. Um, people in the left trying to cover for the, the obvious damage that they've done. But you, know, you mentioned Milton Friedman, and, and you're exactly right with respect to, I don't care if you're taxing billionaires or, or taxing the middle class, right? He had that famous talk about four ways to spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself. That's the best way. You bargain hard, you get what you want. You can spend your money on someone else like a gift. You still bargain hard. You get close to what you want. You could spend someone else's money on yourself. You're not going to bargain at all, but you're going to get exactly what you want. Like if you're on an expense account for a corporation or something like that. <laughs> but the worst way, right, is you're spending somebody else's money on somebody else. And that is exactly what government does. And that is how we get to 30 plus trillion dollars in debt with declining performance metrics across the board, no matter what performance metric economically, educationally you want to look at. Um, another thought that came up is that whether you're looking at this as a government taking for a billionaire or whether you're looking at climate change policies as a government taking of the middle class and the working poor, because it's one of the most regressive taxes you can have when you start increasing the cost of energy. And inevitably, when you increase the cost of energy, as we said, you increase the cost of everything. But what's ironic 
is that the demographic that is probably clamoring the loudest in support for the taking by government of, say, the, the, the billionaires with respect to this proposed type of a, a tax that came out this week are the same demographic that are going to experience the largest taking of all. They're going to incur the most damage, which is the younger sort of professionals coming into their professional careers. When you start to run the math of the government debt level coupled with, this is really important, coupled with, this is similar to the carbon accounting, the carbon um, uh, fake accounting, the misleading accounting, where for a wind turbine or a solar panel, we're not going to count all the carbon dioxide that was emitted to get it there, right? To, to make it, to, to manufacture it and install it. We're going to pretend that that never happened, even though the atmosphere doesn't care, the CO2 is the CO2. It's the same with our government financing. When you look at what's off balance sheet, so to speak, we're not counting social security. We're not counting entitlements in those numbers, but those numbers and those commitments and promises and liabilities are massive. So when you look at the government sort of responsibilities in the aggregate, debt plus entitlements, plus each year's outspend across those, not just what the officially scored deficit is, but what the real deficit is, going back to that cigar box model of cash flow, guess who's going to pay that price? It's not the billionaire today. It's not the 55-year-old individual today. Okay, It's going to be the 20-year-old that when that math doesn't work and that time is getting closer and sooner every day that we speak and do nothing about this, uh, you're going to experience a massive reset and not a massive reset in a good way. So what's ironic about this is some of the most ardent, most, most strident supporters of the left and of sort of appropriation of value and consumption of value, a la the leech, are the very same entities or demographics that are going to pay the biggest price in the end. And that is a sad irony. But if we can educate, if we can engage in some constructive public discourse on this, I got to think, I got to believe that some smart uh, light bulbs are going to go off with these individuals or big segments of it to get them to realize what they're actually sort of pursuing with respect to the path. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, do you think that the reason is that they've just been misinformed? Is it just all a product of our public education, of academia, the media, all of that? Are people just misinformed overall? Well, when you take um, someone that um, is just about to enter preschool and you think about if things don't change, what uh, they would go through with respect to education and messaging and funding. So if you look at the money flows, the messaging flows, and then the content uh, that will be pounded into them, it is very much an indoctrination. So starting in kindergarten all the way through grade school, high school, let's assume they go to college, four years of, of college or four plus years of college, right? If you add all that up, what is the messaging and the content of the ideology that they'll be fed? Where are the funding flows going with respect to government and all these other money flows via value appropriators? Where would it be going to fund and to grow and to nurture? And then what is going to be all the extraneous external messaging through media, right? Through entertainment, um, through the elite class, what are they going to be told outside of the classroom and outside of you know, these, these official uh, funded programs, et cetera? It's not hard to imagine that cumulatively over the course of whatever that is, 16 plus years, that a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old coming out of that is going to think a certain way if they're not you know, shown a, a different way of looking at things that's more rationally based, uh, more fundamentally sound. So on your book, uh, Precipice, I believe it's the the left's campaign to destroy America. What? When did you decide that you were going to write this book? Did that take you a while to do? And I believe, I wanted to mention, it's out today, right? It is out today. It's the fortuitous timing for us. Yeah, great timing. Um, yeah, so you can, you can order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I think Indie Books also carries it. Um, and as I said, the proceeds go to a great cause of this uh, mentorship academy with the CNX Foundation. But um, to your question... A lot of the book, the individual chapters, so to speak, were themes that I had spoken about over the course of years. So being, for example, a chemical engineer, I'm an advocate of STEM, given a lot of talks through the years about the importance of STEM and the danger of diluting STEM because of other interests or other ideologies. So for example, if academia and the bureaucracy of academia wants to protect its budget, and there's not as much of a demand for whatever major in the humanities that there used to be, 
finding excuses to dilute the STEM curriculum to basically help subsidize, support a different sort of college within the university or the humanities or whatever the case might be. And I'm a fan of the humanities. Okay. I, I love literature and music and entertainment. I'm a fan of them. Um, they're, they're great, but you know, to, to avoid that accountability and then use that to justify the dilution of STEM, that's dangerous. That's, that's not, that bridge is not going to be as well designed as it would have been if the engineer designing it was spending all of their time more focused on civil engineering type of an issue uh, or, or curriculum. So, you know, that to me, some of these things have been laid out in prior speeches independently. The second big sort of driver to this was sitting down one day and looking at all that or thinking about all that and having an epiphany that you know, maybe these things are not, maybe that STEM talk in view is not independent of our views on monetary policy and what that means to the cost of money and capital market flows. Maybe all these things are interconnected. Maybe all of these, and how would they be interconnected? And that's really where I think the concept of the value appropriator, a la the leech, uh, came into being. And then the third thing, so now you, know, you had the individual data points, came across the, uh, the collective concept of how they all intertwine together, what this is all about in the end. And then the third piece of this was what we talked about earlier, you know, just the overall environment, the moral responsibility, the ethical duty of a, a business person these days to advocate for what they think is right, what they think is noble, and what they think is just. So you take those three things together. You know, I had the individual data points or most of them just through being around long enough. You stay around long enough, you'll, you'll you know, accumulate enough of these. Um, the, the conceptual coordination of these actually talking to a common theme and then sort of the, um, the philosophy that I've taken going and involving from political quietism you know, to one of, of an advocacy position. I think those are the three things that led up to the uh, to the publication uh, date today. Now, real quick before we finish up, I had to mention what I think will be the most controversial topic of the entire episode, which is your list of the 10 greatest guitar players of all time, which I'll, I'll link to that. Now you had, I believe it was Van Halen. Was was that number one? Was he number one? I believe it was number one. Yeah, Eddie Van Halen was number one. Now, do you think does that stem from being a big fan or just an objective look at the guitar playing and historical uh, the historical significance overall? Look, Nate, I, I know I'm in for it here because I know you know your way around the six strings way better than I did. Okay, I've seen I've seen some of your performances on on YouTube, etc. Um, so Eddie Van Halen being number one to me, yes, I am a huge um, fan of, of Eddie Van Halen. I was since I was a kid. But to me, um, the reason why is that if you listen to Van Halen one, um, it immediately hits you in the face with this is something completely different. This guy has come from somewhere that no one else has come from before. You can just hear it. So to me, that was like the, the, the key deciding factor to put him first. And Am I a big fan of his? Yeah, absolutely, I am. So I, I can't. Say, I'd love to say it was objective, uh, but that's the best way I could, you know, summarize my ranking with one at least. I couldn't be. I couldn't be objective when I looked at the list because I was still looking for Joe Walsh to be on the list somewhere. Oh, he was close. Yeah, that's. I was. I was I hoping he would be weekend. in there. I just saw him this weekend. They played Pittsburgh. The Eagles did. And let me tell you something. From from a, uh, a guitar playing perspective, he still has it. And What's great about Joe Walsh is he's one of these guitar players that when you get him live, he's sort of like Lindsey Buckingham. He just he over delivers. Like he, he just completely impresses you with his live performance versus what you hear on the record or on the radio. And that's rare. I can't say it. You know, a lot of great guitarists, again, in my opinion, Jimmy Page is a phenomenal guitarist. He's high on that list. But live, he doesn't, he, he, he does, you know, I'd rather listen to Jimmy Page on record than live. Joe Walsh. Lindsey Buckingham, you get them live, they are much better live than they are on record. You can find some people who actually, they decide to do too much when they play live and and uh, not able to find that balance. Now, you did have Jimmy Page on there, I believe uh, Brian May was on there as well, so, so, so that was great. And then the one thing I didn't want to mention, but I feel compelled, I'm a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan, just born and raised, and we've got to mention that you're a uh, Pittsburgh Nate, I'm sure that I'm sure you're a big Steelers fan, right? I, I got to tell you, um, as a kid, and I was a little kid, maybe ten years old, but the whole 
when the Steelers had their heyday in the 70s, people outside of Pittsburgh don't understand. It wasn't because, you know, they were the Patriots of the day or they won four Super Bowls. They were the, the thing that a region that was devastated economically, a lot from driven by this issue that we've talked about in Precipice, right? I've lived through firsthand what happens when these things manifest uh, to a, a degree of significance like they are currently. Bad things happen. But it was just the rallying cry for the region. So the Steelers during that time, um, it wasn't about football or, you know, what the play. It was just it was just the it was the pride of a region that was desperately in need of something positive. I will also tell you my single biggest and there, there have been a few um, just tough losses and moments. My single biggest uh, loss in terms of what I had to endure was the Cowboys Steelers Super Bowl. I think it was Super Bowl 30 in Arizona. Mm. Uh, that was a great game and the tide was turning onside kick. Right. But, uh, but our quarterback during that, that era, Neil O'Donnell, he threw two very untimely interceptions and made, I think the Super Bowl MVP with, uh, was it, was it Larry Brown or who, who was the, uh, I think it was the, the cornerback became the MVP of the game because of those interceptions. I'm not sure on that one. Yeah. So that was a just a, a crushing loss for me. And like I said, if I go across all sports, <laughs> Pittsburgh or otherwise, if I could have one turnout different, it would have been that one. Yeah. I uh, I just had them. You know, a lot of people, they say that they're fans of a team. But you can't choose how you were raised. And my dad was a lifelong Cowboys fan as well. And so I just grew up watching all the games. And uh, I didn't start watching because I'm I'm 34. I didn't start watching until Dave Campo was the coach. That's when I officially started watching every game at that time. So I have had a just terrible 20 years or so, so far. It's been really bad. I don't remember them really being that great. So it's been a pretty tough time thus far. But um, I just thought I just thought that we had to mention that before we got off of here. I wouldn't feel right if we didn't. But I'm going to put links to the book. I've I'm I'm going to get it for sure. I was already reading a bit of it on the on the site because it was available on there. And then the Far Middle podcast, by the way, uh, everyone needs to check that out as well. I love that name, by the way. You're on the Far Middle. That's great. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I like it. But um, yeah, Nick, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. No, Nate, I appreciate it, and uh, let's stay in touch and let's carry on. Good being with you.